Welcome back to the Peds Ortho Podcast, brought to you by Posna. And we are joined today with a really special guest um, from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte. Uh, Brian Scannell is here with us tonight. And this is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado. And uh, this is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt uh, in Nashville, also joining today. Well, thanks so much, Brian, for joining us. Um, I know you were on spring break last week, so hopefully you're refreshed and and ready to chat about some stuff. Um, We do have a couple exciting updates that we wanted to let all of our listeners know about. Um, We are going to be at POSNA this year. We're going to be doing a live episode similar to a little, well, sort of similar, sort of different from last year. Um, But we are going to be there and be talking to some folks. um, And we'd welcome any ideas if you guys have suggestions about anything we should do at the at the annual meeting. But please look out for our uh, our little booth at the annual meeting. And we'll be excited to talk to anybody who who wants to come over and uh, get an autograph from Craig or Carter. Yeah, I'll I'll sign your uh, I'll sign your iPhone. I decided it's a good thing to do right in the front screen. There you go. Maybe we'll get a bobblehead too. That'd be great. Yeah. Any, any tips on giveaways you guys are interested in? Because we're in, we're in the process of uh, maybe getting some T-shirts or coffee mugs or who, who knows, whatever. Brian, what would what would you want as a Peds Ortho podcast giveaway? What would really get you going? I'm always up for a coffee mug, so I think that'd be a great great way to head. Sweet. We'll do some swag. We'll have some swag available. So check yeah, us not- out at Posna. And we've done zero planning for this, full disclosure. This is just like, now that we've said it, we have to do it. So um, pressure's on for us, Julia. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for holding us accountable. (laughs) All right. So without further ado, we'll get into the main event here. So um, as I mentioned, Brian Scannell is here with us from Charlotte. Um, And for those of you who don't know him, he is associate professor uh, as well as associate program director. And what's really cool about that is that he's really involved in medical student and resident education. And so we're going to chat a little bit about that later. Um, But we're going to start off with uh, one of his newer publications that's out in uh, the most recent JPO. And it's about holding antibiotics for pediatric supracondylar humerus fractures for CRPP. So are these pre-op antibiotics that I feel like we all grew up on giving, are they really necessary? So Brian, tell us a little bit about that, how this came about and, uh, and what you do, because that's really what I'm interested in after this paper. What do you do in your practice? Sure, absolutely. So thank you guys both uh, for having me today. Um, this is a lot of fun to do. I've listened to some of the other podcasts and I've enjoyed them. I don't know if I'll be as entertaining as some of your previous guests, but I'll certainly try to live up to that. So I think anytime you're doing research, and I talk to our residents about this, the biggest thing is find something that's going to change practice. And so I, I, I like research that's going to be a little bit controversial. Um, I like research that is potentially going to change what we already do. Um, and there's a lot that we do in medicine and in surgery that's just dogma. And it's just what we've always done. And certainly from the standpoint of preoperative antibiotics, there's a little bit more that goes to it than just dogma. Uh, We do have skip guidelines that we follow, um, but a lot of that's for kind of major uh, procedures. And what there's not a lot is sort of in the minor procedures. So closed reduction, obviously, we're not using antibiotics when we're doing closed reductions on kids under sedation or even in the OR setting. But for years, some of my partners had been using antibiotics on all their kids with supracondylars. And some of us had transitioned and morphed over time over the last kind of six years or so to not use them on every case. Um, We weren't seeing really much of a difference, at least anecdotally, from an infection standpoint. That's really what drove uh, this uh, research project, uh, is for us to kind of look back at what we had done over about a six-year period and find, did we really see any difference in our infection rate? Um, What we found is really no real difference at all. And so not using, not using antibiotics was not inferior to using antibiotics for elbow fractures. And I don't think it's all that surprising. There's actually some other data out there that when you look deep into some other papers, um, they haven't used antibiotics consistently on all these patients. 
Um, other authors have kind of reported on using more of a semi-sterile technique. Um, and so not even fully prepping out the arm with really no major rate of infection. So we, we found very similar results. We had over 800 patients in our study. Uh, we tried to power it based on sort of a 3% infection rate. And it, it's a little bit challenging because the data is all over the place, um, anywhere from zero infections to 20% infection rate, which I don't think consistently we're seeing upwards of 20%. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing some of these procedures. But you know, we found less than a 1% rate both with and without antibiotics. And it's really become my standard practice. What's interesting is I, I operate and work in a lot of different settings. So I go to two different surgery centers, um, and we're pretty good uh, because I'm the one that puts in all those orders. Um, and I'm pretty good at not putting in antibiotics and kind of verbalizing that to the anesthesia team. At our location uh, at CMC where our residents work, oftentimes a lot of those orders get put in ahead of time. And so that, that actually was kind of what we saw too during the study is that probably more of those patients were being operated on at our main hospital. So I've definitely tried over time and for my percutaneous procedures, I'm not using any antibiotics any longer. Um, and that goes for elbow fractures we've extrapolated and there's some adult literature to support it too. Um, but for close reduction and pinning of distal radius fractures as well. I don't know. I can't say I'm not going to speak for all five or all five of us peds people here, but I think the majority of us are not routinely using uh, antibiotics any longer. That's great. And I think your your point about picking research that's going to change practice and, and be controversial, you've hit it right on the head here, because I think there's probably a lot of people who are going to have a really hard time changing their practice, even when they have some evidence that that it doesn't matter. You know, you see, you know, we're all biased by our most recent complication, you know, and so you get a deep infection and it sucks, you know. Um, what do you counsel your families on? Because I think um, there's obviously some other factors that contribute more than preoperative antibiotics to, to getting an infection, right? So how do you counsel your families on the risk of infection? Because that's one of the things that we have to consent for, you know, what do you, what do you tell them? Yeah. So I think for supercondylars, um, you know, I tell them it's a less than 1% risk. Now I've got data from our center to kind of support that. That was the number I used anyway before based on some other studies by Melman and others that found kind of one to 3%. You know, I don't, I wouldn't say that I routinely have that conversation with families um, as far as whether or not I'm going to give antibiotics. There are certainly families that will ask that. I think we all have that where families will kind of say, well, what are we going to do to try to prevent infection? And especially when there's a cast, how do I know there's not an infection underneath this, underneath the cast? And I think families really worry about that. You know, in those situations, I tell them, you know, it's not something we routinely do here, you know, and we've got data to kind of back that up. So um, it's probably not part of my routine conversation, but now that you bring it up, maybe it should be. Uh, definitely not not suggesting that. More just, um, you know, the, the bad infections that I've had have been kids who have jumped in a lake or gone in the ocean or whatever, and then come in, you know, four days later with their cast soaking wet, growing all sorts of nasty stuff. Um, and so I think the biggest counseling thing is for, for me personally is just, hey, you know, the things that you can do to prevent infection, right? Keep the cast clean. Don't put anything down it. And uh, kind of put that, not put the entire thing on the family for sure, but make sure that they understand that they're going to take a big part in preventing infection too. So no, absolutely. I think you're dead on. And ed that education piece is, is the most important for not just the family, but for the kid too. Um, you're right. All of us have had those kids that have jumped in, whether it be lakes, uh, I have one that I will remember because the pin sites look terrible on a kid in a lower extremity that, uh, the mom said the cast smelled. So she put dishwashing soap all over it. And those pin sites look terrible. Um, but to her, that was the right thing to do because it smelled bad. And she thought she was helping the kids. So I think, uh, like you said, education uh, is the most important thing. That was early in my practice. Probably changed a little bit of how I talk and communicate with families with pins and casts in place. Absolutely. Well, so question for you. So, Craig, are you convinced? Are you going to stop using antibiotics or do you use antibiotics? So I do, um, but I, I feel a little guilty because sometimes the anesthesiologist asks, do you want antibiotics for this? And they kind of have that hint in their voice, like, you know, this is ridiculous. And um, it's still from my training because, you know, I just haven't done a deep dive into the literature until 
just, you know, this week reading Brian's article and the ones before it to kind of convince myself that it's an okay thing. Now, I think of this very similar to the open fracture debate, the type one open fracture debate. It's like every piece of evidence that comes out seems to really support this non-inferiority sort of idea. But then when you hear people debate about it, there are people on the side of the antibiotics or in that case, the debate of washing out where they'll, they'll cite some disaster case. Like Julia, you just talked about, you know, a couple of terrible cases, but antibiotics don't prevent those things. And it's like, and I, I remember at Posnitz last year, this debate about open fracture thing. And they're like, yeah, these are terrible. You got to respect them. And they talked about this example of a case gone horribly wrong. But the thing was, they washed that case out. They, d- they did what our current standard of care is. And sometimes bad things happen. And I don't think it's because we didn't do this extra thing that is now evidence showing over and over and over again. Maybe doesn't make sense. That is a long way to tell you. I'm not going to answer your question yet. <laughs> but Excellent I did, avoidance. <laughs> I, I did really want to hold everyone's feet to the fire and like maybe explore reasons why. I think I personally need to just see the field moving that way. Like, I just don't want to be on the forefront of this. For me, this is like, okay, antibiotic stewardship, but I've really never seen major complications from giving antibiotics either. So until it becomes more standard of care to not, I just don't feel the need to be on the forefront. But Brian, I would do it for you. I think I would. And I just, you know, got to get over that little bit of hesitancy. Josh, what about you? Yeah, I'm similar similar to Craig in that I don't know that I really have a, a real bias one way or the other as much as it's probably harder for me to not give it, right? It's just, it's easier to give it. And since I don't see a major complication of giving it, I don't see the cost as a detriment to giving it. Um, it's just easier to give it. And so certainly I would, I would if someone at my hospital or someone came through and said like, you know, we're looking to shave off antibiotics, pick five cases, like this would be the first one to go. And I would stop giving it really if I had any, any reason to to not give it. So kind of like Craig, I just, it hasn't been like a real mission of mine to not give them. And that's probably not a great answer, but I, it's just easier to give them than to not. Totally fair. Totally but fair. I think everyone listening is going to have probably feel I expect the way Josh and I do, or maybe be more opposed. And I would like to hear Brian convince us why it's important that we don't give them, why it's important we listen to the evidence and, you know, maybe we're causing harm with these antibiotics. I don't know that we have any true data that us giving preoperative antibiotics for supercondylar is causing any significant harm. I mean, every once in a while you're going to have an antibiotic reaction that you didn't expect, but that percentage is much, much lower than our infection rate that we're seeing. You know, we talked about in the article a little bit of just antibiotic stewardship. You know, that has become a hot topic at our hospital with our infectious disease doctors through and through. Um, You know, I don't know, you know, what's that number that we need to get our antibiotic use preoperative down to, to really, truly save uh, and be good stewards. Uh, I don't know what that would be. What's interesting, though, and I'd be interested to hear from you guys, too, even some of my adult partners are pushing the limits in this, though, now, too. And I'm wondering, too, if just sort of the environment that we are in, you know, I I do, I I work and train uh, our residents as a program director, but I, I work within a private practice, and we're a private practice that owns our own surgery centers, we're a private practice that, you know, pays that overhead. I don't think antibiotics are a huge overhead for us by any means, but we're looking for everything that we can do to kind of decrease costs without certainly causing any harm to patients. Where I see it a lot too is even um, my adult hand colleagues that are doing the wide awake local anesthetic and no tourniquet. So the Wallant procedures, and they're not using antibiotics on those. Now, granted, most of those are soft tissue procedures, but there, many of them are more open than any of the supercondylars that we're doing too. So I think, you know, I think we're, see, we're seeing at least locally a little bit more of that trend away from using it for more of these minor procedures. You can argue whether I've had plenty of supercondylars I've wrestled with that I wouldn't consider minor, but still able to do them closed in many instances. So, you know, I don't know that we're really truly preventing any true harm, but I do think long term, I think we have to be real cognizant from an antibiotic standpoint and what we're doing. And that may not even be within our lifetime. 
Thanks. I think that's a great, uh, a great discussion. And we'll be interested to, to hear back from our listeners. You know, if anybody has strong feelings, we'd love to hear from you. So I'd like to move on uh, from that topic and maybe talk a little bit about the match and residents and medical students and training. Um, and Brian's been very involved in that, written a bunch about it. And since it was match week last week, we have some kind of timely discussion about that. So first thing I'd love to ask you, Brian, is what's your favorite thing about being involved in education, both for medical students and residents? There's lots of things that I love and there's lots of things that are headaches, you know, and as a program director, I definitely feel that at times there's a big burnout rate, but I'll tell you the biggest thing that I love is hearing from our graduates. You know, in the last year, six months, I've heard from a couple different residents and it's really, or former residents that have reached out and said, thank you. Um, you know, and some of it may be somebody that was struggling during residency, and that may not necessarily be in surgical skills and maybe in a different area, a different domain. But, you know, some of what we had kind of done and talked to them and worked with some of those residents on, hearing them kind of now in practice come back and say thank you, that I think is what sort of makes it worthwhile. And I know that they're out doing good stuff too. So I think that's the most enjoyable thing is hearing back from some of our graduates. Um, the best time of year, which is also sometimes the saddest time of year is our graduation. I mean, it's just, it's a fun time getting really to celebrate, um, our chiefs. We're already, I mean, we start our process of kind of looking at that sort of January, February, and even actually before that to sort of tie down, you know, a visiting professor and it's exciting. Uh, it's an exciting time of year for us and our, for our program and for our residents, but I think those two things. So seeing our graduates head off, whether it be in a fellowship or practice, um, and then hearing back from our graduates too. Super cool to pass things on to the to the next generation of surgeons, and then kind of see that start to circle around. It's been uh, fun for me in particular to to come back to the same place that I trained because I got to you know be an attending to residents that I worked with, and then now seeing them kind of come all the way through. It's it's a really special relationship. So I totally hear you on that. One of the papers that you wrote pre-COVID, right, was about the match and the orthopedic match and how I think, you know, shocking the numbers kind of were on how many programs people had to apply to, how much money they had to spend, how many people were taking out loans just to spend that money. And obviously things have changed with COVID. Um, So I guess my next question to you is, how do you think the match should change and how do you think it will change post COVID given that I do think things were really kind of at a breaking point right before COVID with orthopedics and just how much effort went into such a competitive field. I wish I had some sunshine here to kind of talk about actually looking at the numbers for this year. I I think we're broke. Uh, she said, trying to, trying to avoid getting to that broken spot. I think the system is broke right now. Um, the numbers, and I'm not a hundred percent, but these are sort of what have been passed around, whether it's been on social media or through some emails that I've seen from some other, you know, program directors and also chairs, but it looked like we had over 1700 applicants for orthopedics this year. And For those that may or may not know, there's less than 900 spots. We had a 40% unmatch rate this year, which I've never, I mean, it's, that's absurd. There are other specialties. um, And again, I can't verify all the numbers, but I know ER still had around 200 open spots for residency programs. So I think we're at a broken point. Um, And I don't know that right now I have the answer. There's a lot that I can tell you. I've been fortunate to really work with some great people. Uh, Josh Pat, who is the program director before me uh, here, who's vice chair of education. Um, Tessa Balich, who's at uh, University of Chicago. And Tessa has been leading up uh, the CORD academic committee. And this is a priority right now for CORD of trying to figure this out. We are really looking at all different things from signaling, which other specialties have done, Um, And for those that don't know what signaling is, it's basically almost like the bachelor where you reach out with a rose and say, you're one of my programs uh, that I'm interested in uh, to really allow students to kind of show that I'm more interested in certain programs compared to others. 
we've flirted with, you know, caps on number of programs people can apply to. It's challenging for me. Uh, we had over 1,200 applicants, which is up by 200 in the last three years. So it's challenging for me to kind of go through and find the right people. There's so many great people that are out there. But to get that 1,200 down to interview 80 to then match five is really, really challenging from a program director standpoint. And then the other gloom on top of that is step one is now going to pass fail. And so step one historically, and we talked about it in our paper too, was over 80% of program directors use step one in some form or fashion as sort of a screen. Um, and I'll fully admit that we, we have used it as a screen. However, I look and we interview and we have matched people below that screening number before. So there has to be something else that people have kind of reached out or rotated with us, or there's some communication from some of their advocates or sponsors. But I think the pass-fail for step one is just going to make things more challenging. I, I see more people. Uh, I mean, this is a great field, not just peds ortho, but orthopedics in general. Um, and I see more people wanting to go into ortho. And I think, I mean, think back to med school too. How many friends did you sit here say, well, I didn't do as well in step one, so I'm just not going to even go for ortho anymore. I mean, I knew a number of people that fell into that. I might have even personally fallen into that with my step one score. So I'm optimistic that we have good people that are really working to try to fix this broken system. Um, but I think this year was was even further broken than it has been in the past. And I'm seeing it with some outstanding students uh, that were ranked really highly at our program, too, that ended up not matching. And, you know, it is we, we're just we're seeing some really good people and not that people in the past weren't good if they didn't match, but uh, we're seeing a lot more of it now. So um, I wish I had that quick answer for you. I don't know that I do as far as what the next steps are. But I can assure you, Cord is working on it. I'll be heading to Chicago to the academy. We've got some meetings coming up. I have no doubt this will pop into a lot of the discussions. And then uh, the Cord meeting at AOA uh, this summer, I'm sure, will uh, also hit this as a hot topic, too. Well, I appreciate you being involved and all the people that are involved in that, because I, I agree with you. It's really hard to watch um, students that you know would be great and they don't match. And, and that's a really, really challenging thing. And I think it's also hard to see people who have gone through the, the process multiple times not match. Um, so it just gets harder, it seems like, every year. So I think one other thing that, to kind of lead into my next question, you know, is we all know those people who uh, are fantastic on paper and, uh, you know, you think they're going to be great. And then they struggle some uh, during residency in one way or another, whether it be surgical skills or time management or test taking or whatever it is. Right. So what do you do in your program, Brian, to really facilitate residents being successful, uh, whether they have challenges in certain areas or not? You know, how do you get people through the system and turn out happy, uh, successful surgeons? Well, I don't guarantee happiness in our program, but we try to make it that way. Yeah, this is, I appreciate you asking about it. This has really been a passion of mine over the last number of years. Um, you know, we, we have really utilized our clinical competency committee, which meets semi-annually, to really spend a lot of time sitting down and talking about each of our residents. Um, we have used that then when we've sort of identified problems for especially younger residents. Because what we want to do is we want to identify these issues early on in residency so that we can help them. And so what we've done um, for some that are struggling is creating either more of a mentorship type program. And depending on what that issue will be, sometimes we'll pair them with a faculty or sometimes we'll pair them with a senior resident if it's a junior resident. And I try to be real specific with who I'm pairing them uh, with depending on what the issue is. So that they can really focus. So if it's a resident, you know, just as an example, who's really struggling with just the presentation of patients at morning checkout and it's nerves. And so what I want to do is get somebody that does that well, pair them up, make sure that they're going through things, uh, repeating it over and over to make sure that they're comfortable with things for checkout and making sure that they're being thorough with their checkout, too. And I think that's sort of a simple example, but there are lots of other issues that pop up from a resident standpoint. So pairing them up with the right person is really important. If we've done that, we're not seeing sort of improvement 
you know, our goal is not to have residents on probation. It's more work for me. It's more paperwork for me. I don't want it. I don't want it for them. And so we, um, we have what we call the resident improvement committee. So I set up a committee usually with two, two or three faculty and then a resident, if it's more of a junior resident. So we pick a senior resident to be with them. And we really have them meeting on a regular basis to make sure that they're helping them in whatever area they're struggling. Use an example of surgical skills. We may really put an emphasis on surgical simulation training, which we are fortunate to have a lot of here to really help them get confident in the OR by repetition outside of the OR. And again, our goal is to prevent them from getting to a point where we need to go on to any kind of probation. So we've really formalized this process here at CMC over the last years, and it has helped tremendously. Um, We've been able to identify issues early on because what we want to avoid is, you know, that five or that late four that's really struggling in an area, and we just don't have time to help them. And it's hard at that point to say, well, you need more time, you know, because it's not an easy transition point, especially after fellowships are decided, you know, or they're working on job stuff already. Um, You've really got to find out what some of those issues are early on. I'm optimistic that um, the ABOS uh, surgical skills assessment, behavioral assessment may come more into play. I think that's what they're intended to do. You know, I've been utilizing our 360 evals through the ABOS, and I've seen some really enlightening things, especially on the peer evals. We've always done peer evals, but I think the residents see the ABOS one as being maybe a little bit more confidential and secure. So I'm seeing more true and honest comments from people uh, compared to probably what we saw in previous years. So we have to use that just like we get, you know, patient reviews or reviews from our own partners, uh, whether that just be a side comment or what, but we've got to use those comments to make ourselves better. And I think we're, at least from a program director standpoint, we have more tools now. Um, it's, it's a matter of utilizing those tools for some of that resident improvement. I remember, you know, even when I was a resident, we aren't that old, you know, but I I always felt like I was trying to hide my weaknesses. We all have them, right? And I always felt like I was trying to hide them. And I wish that I'd had more of an attitude of like embracing my weaknesses and saying, hey, let me like take this head on and let me address it and let me find somebody who's willing to embrace that with me and help me through it. And I think the more we can have that exchange and that, um, uh, interface between faculty and, and senior residents and, and younger residents, that's the best possible outcome so that we don't have anybody that's struggling at their fourth or fifth year. Josh or Craig, any, uh, any comments or, or questions? Yeah, I, the, one of each. I was going to comment. We're, we're fortunate in Peds Orthopedics to have an organization that I think has a particular interest and emphasis on education. POSNA does a great job of, you know, building repositories of videos and educational stuff and ways that not only residents can get on and, and learn from, but also programs can use to, to grow and develop. We had Dr. Noonan on a couple months ago, and he talked about some of the changes within POSNA and, and JPOSNA and things. And they're doing a special edition here in the summer, which is really going to be focused on simulation and simulation that programs around the country have made to help residents learn and educate. And really the emphasis of it will be on how you can watch this simulation and learn how to set it up for your own program, right? And so things like that that are coming from our organization, I think, are also a helpful way for individual residents, but also then program chairs and directors to be able to kind of build education into their curriculum better. Brian, my question for you is, as someone who thinks about education, what are your thoughts quickly on time-based education versus various different thresholds that people have proposed or presented as to when someone should be deemed ready to graduate their training? The point I would be most sad about is uh, I have de- I would definitely have some residents that would be done early, and I would miss having them during their chief year in a more uh, competency-based. Uh, we have a number of residents that would probably finish easily in four years, and I'm sure you, you guys do at each of your respective programs, and those residents come to mind immediately. And I have a few that you know I think have needed or will need some extra time too. We've tried to make it a little bit of a combination of both, you know, trying to not make it such a stigma that if more time is needed, that it's okay to take it. The hard piece of that is the financial side. 
because uh, that's another year. And most institutions, your GME doesn't cover that. We are fortunate uh, that we have a department that will will do that. You know, because we want our residents to be successful, and I want them when they graduate to be as good as that they as they can be, and as good as we feel that they need to be to be a competent orthopedic surgeon. I think that we will probably over years transition to a little bit more competency based. I think there are a number of things that we're looking at from a tool standpoint. Um, and I don't know if the ABOS surgical skills and things like that will be what we'll end up using in the future for that. But I think we're starting to work and develop some stool, some tools to really determine that true competency and then in order to determine whether people are ready for graduation. So we're definitely working on it. Your comments about the surgical simulation, it's now become a mainstay for all of our residents and it will continue to be too. So I think that's going to be another assessment tool that we can do. What we don't have, at least universally, we don't have um, simulation-based assessments uh, in sort of each and every area. Um, My hand colleagues here, by utilizing like an O-score type um, assessment tool and do a every month simulation with our residents where they're going through a carpal tunnel, a distal radius, and a trigger finger, and literally scoring them on how they are doing. And I think that's what we're going to get to a little bit more across kind of all of our specialties, you know, whether it's peds, ortho, whether it's trauma, you know, adult recon, whatever it may be. I think that that's kind of the direction that we're sort of heading a little bit. Hey, Brian, it's Craig. I just wanted to kind of get back to the first thing we were talking about in terms of selecting students and, you know, the board scores going to pass fail and the difficulty in this question that came to mind for me. And I always wonder is what factor or piece of an applicant's uh, CV or experiences do you think is most predictive of their success as a resident? And I know success as a resident is very difficult to define, but let's maybe define it as the ones who, if it were competency-based, would be done early. Lots of people have tried uh, to figure out what that magic, uh, magic piece is. I mean, I think, like you said, Craig, I think all of us have probably those residents that come to mind that there are some certain key things that we remember of them from uh, before they mastered our programs. You know, I think the one thing that I have noticed, um, you know, where residents may struggle is when they haven't been in sort of a team format. So that is definitely, you know, it doesn't have to be sports, but it's something that you are working in a group and working with others. And that's not for our residents. It's not just working with each other. It's being in practice like we are now and being able to run our OR and working in our team in the, working with our team in the OR, working with our team in clinic. So I think that aspect of it are certainly the ones that seem to be the most successful. The other piece that I would kind of say, and this might, this is probably a little bit harder to kind of tease out, I think, uh, from interviews or just even from the application, but the residents that just get after it seem to do the best. And the ones that are sitting a little bit more on the sideline, I mean, that makes sense, right? I don't know that it's a profound statement that I'm making there, but, you know, the ones that are, that seem a little bit hungrier, and that's not something that you're going to see on an application, but I do see that once they get here. So I think before I'm looking for sort of that team environment, something that they're passionate about, something that they've done and put a lot of time and effort into. And then when they get here, I want to see that they're hungry. And if they're not, I got to try to make them hunger. Both those things just resonated so much with me and the the people that I was thinking of. So I'm 100% on board. I wish they could just grade themselves accurately uh, beforehand to make it easy on us to identify those things. Yeah, it would be easy. It would be easier. <laughs> but it, it's it's going to get more challenging and, and not not in a good way either. I mean, with step one, I don't think step, step one is not the best test. I mean, we, I, there are way better tests to know whether somebody's going to be good at what we do, but it's what we've used. Uh, a lot of medical schools are now pass fail. There is not much on a CV other than research that is differentiating people. And I think you probably saw it too on some social media this week of a lot of discussion of, does everybody need to do a research here now? That should not be the case, but that's the bucket that I think people are looking to fill Because the other buckets are becoming, you know, everybody's already got that bucket covered with a pass-fail score of pass. So 
the other piece that I, I think the system to kind of get back to what Julia was uh, getting at earlier that I, I think the system is affecting is those students that early on may not find those advocates or may not even know that they're interested in orthopedics and they're coming to it late. And you can see that in some of the applications on some good people, but they just don't have some of those relationships with some of the faculty at your institutions that, you know, sets them apart because they haven't sort of worked and done research for four years or three and a half years by the time they're applying. And so I think we're going to hurt more of those applicants too in the future with the current system. And that's, I want to get away from that. I'm just not sure the best way to do that yet. Yeah, totally agree. It's like um, how when we are admitting people for medical school, you're almost more interested in the people who majored in humanities as opposed to biosciences, right? It's just more diverse and, you know, the people that come in not knowing they want to do orthopedics initially, sometimes there's just a better perspective and more to offer. And I, I do think the current system is kind of shutting them out. It gets really exhausting reviewing all those applications. I mean, it's, you know, every everybody's like started a company or or started a nonprofit or, you know, beat cancer. I, I mean, they're just incredible stories on almost every single one of them. It's really hard to pick. And a lot of really smart, really great people go unmatched into our field. So uh, we'll see what the future brings with that. So thank you so much for chatting with us about that, Brian, and, and sharing Absolutely. You know your, your thoughts on that. Um, and I did want to apologize real quick and get this on the record. You are the program director. <laughs> You're, you need to update your website because I That's totally thought you sure. were. And, uh, and, uh, and then I looked and the ortho Carolina website still says you're the associate program director. So I apologize for that, but get, get your IT people on there. <laughs> not offended, not offended at all. Cool. Well, um, Craig and Josh, do you guys want to move into a little bit of a lightning round? Yes, we do. Josh, who, who, who do you want to go first? The silence and the finger means me. Yeah. You have the basic science one. So I'll, I'll warm them up a little bit. All right. Study number one. So this is called factors affecting slip progression after in situ screw fixation of stable slipped capital femoral epiphysis. So uh, this is out of the Utah group. Um, it's a retrospective review, but uh, really well done from a statistical standpoint. And they're essentially looking at the in situ stable slips, uh, in situ pin stable slips, and they defined failure uh, as progression or worsening of the Southwick angle of 10 or more degrees or uh, perceived symptoms related to that, not impingement or skippy deformity, but related to progression that uh, required a revision. And so there were 93 patients, 108 slips. They had 15 failures total. And I'm just going to skip to the results and ask you guys this question. So I'm going to give you the factors that were significant in their model, but I want you to tell me which one you thought was the most important. Um, so the initial number of threads crossing the physis was significant, more threads, uh, less, less slipping. Um, severity, and in this case, it was mild slips were actually more likely to progress. Uh, male sex more likely to progress. And using a partially threaded instead of a fully threaded screw was more likely to progress. So which of those factors do you think had the biggest influence on progression? They did odds ratios after those came up in the model. Julia, you read it, right? But maybe not in that detail. I did read it, but I didn't read it in that much detail. And I, right, I'm just going to... Yeah, I am fair game. I think um, my guess is threads crossing. Um, and, and I can't really tell you why. I just think that, you know, I, I see a lot of these where you're like stoked to get three threads across, right? Because it's such a terrible angle and you're like, okay. So I would hope that the more threads across we get, the better, but I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I was going to go the same. I was going to go threads across. It's got to be threads across because that's what got beat into us during residency. <laughs> And that was based off of, uh, I think, the Carney study. They cite that a lot. And that was the biggest effect here. If they only had two threads across, they essentially all failed, um, or only 20% did okay. 76% success if you had three threads across. Um, the number that we were probably all taught was five, but this, number, this paper came up with four. They said if you have four across, at least in their study, 100% of them uh, stayed stable. And so they kind of set that as a new threshold. 
you know, it was funny. Age was a factor, but then when they ran uh, the multivariate, it ended up just being the threads. And the idea is that, you know, age probably is reflective of smaller epiphyseal real estate. And so you get less threads there and it has really maybe not less, not as much to do with the age and the time that you have to slip again, but more so just the, the limits of threads you get across. So I thought that was interesting. The other thing I thought was interesting was the fully threaded versus partially threaded screw uh, has a ratio of 6.8, 6.8 times more likely to fail with a partially threaded screw than a fully threaded. And I don't think that has been uh, discussed a lot. And so I think that would be practice changing potentially for people that use partially threaded screws. Anyone you regularly use partially threaded? I've historically yeah. used fully threaded, but I have used the uh, Skiffy screw, not the not the lengthening one we've talked about before, but another company that makes one that, to me, the benefit of it is it has a locking, a capturing extraction mechanism, which is really the only benefit just because I've had a fair number of these struggling to get out and they're all healed and dense as can be. So I wish that's, that's a partially threaded screw. However, the, di- the diameter of the shank is the same diameter of the threads. And so it's really meant for ease of removal. That's kind of really the manufacturing behind it. Yeah. I'm thinking it has to do with toggle and metaphysis. So that might address it, but um, interesting point. All right. Second one is getting at uh, observation versus cast treatment for toddlers fractures. This is uh, from the group at Seattle Children's. And um, they had 44 patients. They attempted to randomize, but uh, preference was too strong. And so a majority of the patients in the study were in the preference arm. Sound familiar, Josh Holt? Um, and so uh, my question for you guys is, uh, I think we all know that toddlers fractures are going to do well. Uh, my question for you is, which did the patients or the parents prefer when it was all said and done? Did they want to have a cast for four weeks, long leg cast, or did they like being observed? I, I didn't, I don't know this study, but I can tell you, I cannot freaking get anyone to not put a cast on their kid. I try desperately to not cast these and have probably been failed at 20 or more of them where I have not been able to talk <laughs> into someone not wearing a cast. Brian, how about you? Yeah. So this article seems to kind of back up what I've been doing a little bit, maybe without the evidence behind it, but I've always seen these as like the buckle fracture of the distal radius. And I've kind of seen this as sort of a one and done, but Josh is right. We spend, sometimes we spend more time convincing the family uh, that they don't need anything. I tend to not treat these in a cast, um, that if it's truly a non-displaced toddler's type fracture, I, I prefer no cast. And if they need something, I'll do, we have these little wee walker boots. I'll put them in a wee walker and tell them to wear it for a week or two. And then they'll start walking when you take it off after that. Julia, what do you think? What do the parents yeah. prefer? I, I'm in the same boat. I just can't convince people not to put a cast on. And I think the boots are really good way to go. Cause it like provides something, but you know, then you have the parents that are just like, well, but it, the fracture is above the boot and you know, and, and you're like, well, uh, I mean, yeah, maybe. So I think the, the conversation with the parents is the hardest. And, and oftentimes, I mean, these are, if they're willing to deal with the cast, then I just give in. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we're all jaded by that distal radius buckle study we reviewed a couple episodes ago where even though they found out it cost more, they still wanted the cast. So interestingly, in this study, 70 to 80% of the parents who got the cast said they would choose that again. 95% of the parents that did observations said they would choose it again. Again, it wasn't randomized, so there's probably some biases in there, but um the parents that got observation were pretty happy with it. And I actually think the difference might be the fact that because they were studying them, they saw them back at four weeks and eight weeks. I think when I offer observation, I'm offering to the family, listen, this means you don't have to come back. I think not all families see that as a plus. Some families want to come back and they want to get irradiated and they want you to tell them that everything is fine. And uh, maybe, maybe this got around that because they did take x-rays at four weeks to prove everything was fine. And as a side note, this study is now the largest study published that talks about just observing these and not giving an immobilization. So it's at least some data to back up what all of us have tried convincing our patients of. So there you go, everybody out there listening. It's okay. 
It's okay to just <laughs> not do anything. Um, let us know if you come up with any ways to convince parents that that's okay. Cool. Well, I decided to mix it up a little bit because we haven't given basic science yeah. any love, maybe ever. You sure did mix it up. All so right. sorry about that. But so I, let's jump from toddler's yeah. fractures to mesenchymal stem cells and exomes promoting growth and healing. So this study is interesting. Um, it's out of Singapore. And what the authors did, it's a rat model that they used that they went and surgically um, traumatized in a controlled fashion, the distal femur physis of rats. And then at varying time points, got a CT scan initially, and then at a later time point, sacrificed the animals, got a CT scan, and did histology and biochemistry and things on the physis to look for various growth mediators and essentially evaluate the cartilage and what sort of took place after they traumatized the physis. There are two groups where the first group was just a control group where they just essentially injected the carrier agent for for what their really study group was injecting mesenchymal stem cell exomes, um, which essentially are stem cells that then can differentiate and become cartilaginous cells. They can become osseous cells, osteoblasts, um, but essentially looking to see what happens to growth and what happens to the the histology of physial injuries. So my question to you guys, do you think that injecting, and they just injected them into the knee. So clearly the distal femur physis in a rat is intraarticular. Otherwise this model would seem inadequate, but do you think that injecting stem cells into rats knees after you surgically traumatize their distal femur physis um, had an effect? Obviously it did because it was studied. So my question to you guys is, how do you think it had that effect? Do you think that it prevents kind of bar formation, which would be kind of the logical explanation? Do you think that it promotes cartilage development and lets the scar heal in as, you know, propagating cartilage cells that then can then grow like a physis or through any other mechanism that you can fancy in your imagination? Um, I'm going to start off the bidding. Um, I'm going to say choice A. I don't think that these are magic cells that just do what you intend, no matter how well-programmed you are. But I do think MSCs have anti-inflammatory properties. And I was lucky enough to be involved in some research as a med student that I had nothing to do with. But that's one of the things that we had studied with arthritis. And um, I, that's not what we thought was going to happen, but it just decreased the inflammatory response. And that was kind of beneficial um, so I don't know. I'm going to go with choice. Hey, I can't believe it worked at all, but okay. Brian, what do you think? Um, I struggle as I hear the model, uh, with how this would kind of be incorporated into clinical practice. Um, obviously it's got a little ways to go until it gets to that point. I, I don't see it ha making a major play, just injecting it into the joint. We've tried this with other things, uh, whether it be PRP uh, or you name it, we have tried in, uh, multiple injectables for various things. Maybe in a young rat, it may help with like cartilage, uh, kind of or that repair or healing at the physis, but I don't believe that it would do a whole lot else. Yeah. And honestly, that was kind of my thought, which clearly being published in JBJS, they had different results from that. But what they've showed is that at the four week and at the eight week intervals, um, and again, I think it was pretty well controlled because they showed that their control animals that, that just had the phosphate buffered saline injected and not the MSCs showed significant difference in, in growth. Um, and so they didn't show continued growth and they showed, you know, bar formation and, and growth arrest that happened. Whereas those who got the MSC injections at the four week and at the eight week showed significant differences in the amount of growth arrests that occurred. So there was still some growth arrest compared to the normal growth of the contralateral side. However, it was impacted less by a significant amount when compared to the um, rats who didn't have the MSCs injected. So as to how it happened, that's what's still a little tricky because what they showed is that there wasn't any difference in bar formation. So even though they injected it, Craig, to your point is, is you were wrong because there there was bars still on both of them. However, somehow, some way, those bars, and again, I, I think there's still a lot that needs to be figured out, but they 
maybe were later in formation. They allowed some growth before then. There was more propagation of cartilage cells that allowed more growth kind of and remodeling through the bar. You know, just because there's a bar doesn't mean that there can't be some remodeling and, and continued change that happens through that. So an interesting study, I think, certainly very early on, as you point out, Brian, a lot to think of how this would be transitioned to any sort of clinical practice. But so at least some promise, some promise with the MSCs that in this very early study, they they showed significant decrease in the discrepancy of length between the the normal limb and the affected limb. Great. Thank you, Josh, would have been for it, would have been interesting delving into that. <laughs> I was going to say, it would have been interesting if they just put cement in there and stopped the bar from forming to see if it does better than what we currently do for these bars. My, right? my thoughts. Exactly. I mean, I just thought back to, you know, the, what we did for Delta failings and things in at Rady. And I think maybe just blocking it, right. Maybe that's, maybe that's the answer is just having something that fills the void. So it doesn't fill in and a bar doesn't form, but lots, lots to think about, hopefully more to come over our lifetimes as, as far as the basic science and, and hopefully clinical application on all that. Well, thanks, guys. Um, That was a great episode. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us and sharing your thoughts and and wisdom with us. Um, Again, appreciate all of our listeners out there and uh, look forward to um, next month's episode. And then uh, after that, we'll be, as we mentioned, doing uh, some version of a live podcast at, at POSNA in Vancouver. Can't wait. Brian, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Josh tells me I'm wrong. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was so harsh. <laughs> so had to make sure everyone was clear. Everyone was well aware. 50-50 <laughs> chance. <laughs>